from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Welcome back. I'm Elaine Cha. U.S. Transportation Command, or TRANSCOM, provides air, land, and sea transportation across the globe to meet this country's national security needs. The command is based at Scott Air Force Base in the Metro East. Its leader is General Jacqueline Van Ovost. She's been in that role since last October, and before that, she led Air Mobility Command, which is also based at Scott Air Force Base. St. Louis Public Radio's Eric Schmidt recently sat down with General Van Ovost to talk about the command's work in Ukraine and much more, including the defense challenges in the years ahead. Eric first asked about an overview of what U.S. Transcom does. I'm a global transportation company. You know, think trucks, think rail, ships and airplanes that carry military equipment and personnel around the globe uh, to meet our national security needs. That's what we do at U.S. Transportation Command at Scott Air Force Base. So to me, that seems like a job that is, well, it's one when you do it well, many people may not notice, but if you do it poorly, many people may notice. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I would say we move stuff around the world on a daily basis, right? Uh, And when we think about the Ukraine conflict, We've moved, you know, somewhere close to 195 million pounds of stuff around the world to get to Ukraine. And President Putin can't even get outside of his front yard. Logistics is very important to any operation. And I think that uh, our logistics prowess has shown itself over and over again. And and, and that Ukraine example right now, I mean, it's a really clear example of this mission in action. Exactly. You know, we are helping Ukraine defend itself against the naked aggression from Russia. Let's say the air defense systems that you see that they're using, the artillery systems that you see that Ukraine is using, know that it came from the United States, mainly from the United States, and and about 25 other countries have helped. But it came from places that were not, not in Ukraine. We brought it from around the world, as far as the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. And so when you say you're bringing it from the Indo-Pacific, that's Transcom bringing that. You're, you're the ones getting the requests for that. Um, I understand that right? Exactly. So we have forces uh, around the world, and so we had some equipment prepositions around the world uh, to include in the Indo-Pacific uh, and, and in Europe and in the Middle East. And we made decisions to find out where we would source that equipment from, and that included those locations, including uh, quite a bit here in depots from the United States. So what are the kinds of requests that you're getting from European command or other commands Mm -hmm. now for Ukraine? I I think about this especially as we move into winter, and I've been reading stories about, you know, some of the different needs now. Can Can you talk about that? Russia is on this terrible campaign of, of crushing the civilians by, by killing all the critical infrastructure, which means they have rolling blackouts. They don't have the heat, right? So we are focused on supporting them, as is the European Union and NATO, with things like uh, generators uh, and transformers uh, and warm clothing, uh, heating capabilities, tents, sleeping bags. So beyond just the munitions and ability for life support, not just for them, but for aid. It's a multi-pronged effort from NATO 
the European Union, uh, the U.S., and many of our partners in the Pacific, they're sending stuff as well. So what you see is a worldwide coalition to support Ukraine uh, against Russian aggression. So if I understand that right, these requests have kind of shifted from more heavily in terms of artillery and, you know, some of the lethal aid that you have supplied to more aid that is for the people who are there to, to survive the, the winter. And of, of course, you know, winters in Ukraine are harsh. So do, do mm-hmm. I get that right? It's, it's more on the civilian side? No, what I would say is that we have sort of normalized our plan for providing uh, equipment and munitions to Ukraine. And, and so that's always running in the background. But we meet all the time with Ukrainian officials, and and we look at the list and we make sure the priorities are what the Ukrainians need. Like right now, because of the winter, they pushed up the tents, the heaters, the you know the propane, and and they've moved down some other things. Doesn't mean they don't need it; they need it all because they're they continue to get bombed. And what my job is as as we identify where those tents are, where the munitions are is to determine what transportation mode, meaning are we going to truck it, are we going to rail it, are we going to fly it, are we going to put it on a ship? Uh, But even when I put it on a ship, I've got to get it off a ship, let's say in Germany, get it on a rail, and get it then on a truck that gets into Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So it's just these, the priorities are shifting around, but the baseline necessity or the baseline goods are, are fairly you know, the same. Yeah. So it started with less air defense, started more artillery. Now we're seeing that uh, Russia's buying uh, UAVs from Iran and they're using those UAVs as one-way attack missions. And so now they need more air defense. And so you'll, that, that's why air defense sort of moved up in the list at this time, because they're being attacked more from the air than from what they were originally, which was they were just sort of getting, you know, flattened by all of that artillery I want to move to this defense strategy that I think was released this year, and there's a lot in it. So let's start off with this concept of the decisive decade in the Mm -hmm. next 10 years. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the president called this next 10 years the decisive decade because the strategic environment is changing at a very rapid uh, pace. What you're seeing with the naked aggression from Russia, what you're seeing with China with its economic and military coercion, and what we're seeing with North Korea, you may be seeing that he's been shooting off a lot of missiles trying to develop uh, a nuclear weapon, and with Iran. This whole security situation from the globe um, has been rapidly changing, and and frankly, it makes some of the most dangerous of, of our time. And so in this next decade, the question is, are we going to lead and lead this world into a more stable peace because it's unstable right now? Or will, will we be walking it into conflict? When we think about how China is coercing their neighbors, how they're stealing their intellectual property, they would really rather shape the global international norms, which have lasted almost a century now, the very principles of democracy are being attacked by both China and, of course, the naked aggression of Russia. How do we band together with our allies and partners to ensure a more stable uh, globe that acts with some sort of international laws? Because if everybody can flagrantly break them, you know, we're sort of in trouble. 
I think a lot of what comes forward to that in me when you talk about Russia, China, other countries too, is this idea of disruption. Do I understand mm-hmm. that right? Yes, you do. And some people would call it gray zone tactics. This is this is the use of uh, militant fishing vessels to surround a nation so that nobody can bring in food or water into that nation. So it's sort of you know, a semi-blockade. It's overfishing. China's overfishing that's occurring off of Africa, off of South America, trying to not be attributed to them. Oh, these are just fishermen, but they're under the orders of the PRC to go do that. They're using this lawfare, they call it, to press their boundaries and to coerce others to say, well, hey, if you don't like this, we won't sell you the food you need to keep going. How do we one, recognize it. One of it is, is name it. Name it and shame it, right? How, how do you say, yep, this is, this is being done by this nation state, not by some guy in his basement, you know, on his computer. Information operations is another one. You know, you'll hear Russia say one thing, well, we didn't, we didn't drop that bomb. That wasn't ours. And then, you know, 45 days later, we have the, the details. This was the bomb. Here's the serial number. It came from you from this factory. So it was you. But, you know, that's 45 days later. Do you believe them? You know, can you wait for the truth or not? Well, and we even see this with the unarmed vehicles coming from Iran and Russia using them in Ukraine. Like, that's a clear example of this, right? Exactly. They said, we didn't, we didn't sell them. They don't have them. And then, well, no, we gave them a couple, you know, many, many months ago. And then here we have serial numbers for hundreds. The, the facts and the data will prove themselves out. But we have to be better at getting that out to the table, declassifying it and sharing it as soon as possible. One of the other things that stuck out to me was this idea that logistics has a critical role in any future military action. And can you expand on that for me? Yeah. I have said that the logistics has covered some operational risk for us. In other words, sometimes we make decisions and logistically, we can pull out miracles to make it happen because we've done it so well. I think about what we're doing with Ukraine, Operation Baby Formula, the syringes and the vaccines that we sent around the world. Now, we can make all that happen, right? I don't like to be the miracle worker. I'd like, you know, a very, a very stable plan that we can actually execute. You can start a war, but if you want to continue, you've got to have the supplies. You've got to bake all of that into the planning People say the tip of the spear, you think of a spear, the tip of the spear may be a bomb, but the whole shaft, that's all logistics getting it there. So coming from that, how will movement in the future be more difficult or not as easy as it may have been in the past? Yeah, sure. We've had freedom maneuver around the world because we've had access, uh, basing and overflight from all of our allies and partners. So we've been able to go just about anywhere and stack up a whole bunch of stuff and then, you know, use that stack and then continue to fill it up just unabated. And that's what we have done around the world. But in the future, uh, what we call contested logistics come at play. Our adversaries have watched us and how well we move logistics around the world and how we project power. And they're looking at where where the weak links are. And they're looking directly at logistics. 85% of our forces are right here in the United States. So if we're going to go somewhere in Europe or whatever, we've got to marshal them and fly them out. So our adversaries are very focused with their capabilities to stop us because if they can stop us, they don't have to deal with us forward. So things like cyber attacks, things like attacking GPS so that we can't use uh, that for flying or for our ships, 
So we are looking at how do we ensure that we have, have navigation even if GPS goes out? How do we have power even when the power goes out? Right? How do we marshal the forces despite the attacks we could be under? And if we can't, how do we recover from that disruption? There is also this emphasis in this defense strategy placed on a specific need to be able to act faster, have a faster pace, and that the scale of challenges are bigger than before. You know, can you go into this, especially for our audience who, I mean, this is not what they think about. I mean, it's not what I think about on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, you know, um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, at the very beginning of my career uh, was when uh, Saddam Hussein, the Iraqi president, invaded Kuwait. Okay? So he invaded Kuwait with the intention to take all of their oil fields. And our response was a six-month buildup of forces uh, in the Middle East. But today, there's no way that we'll have patience for six months. During that time, we were not being shot at. They weren't trying to infiltrate our cyber, right, in our networks as we were stacking up the capabilities in the Middle East because they didn't have weapons that could reach us. Well, our competitors do have weapons that could reach anywhere we want to start stacking uh, capability. As we think about in the Indo-Pacific or even with with Russia, uh, we're going to have to move a lot faster. And those are the kinds of things that we're practicing now. We're practicing disruption. We're practicing higher readiness levels so that our competitors look at it and say, okay, not today. They actually can get there. And I didn't realize they could get there inside 12 hours. That's a game changer. For this, Transcom is not mobilizing all of its specific military assets every single day. There's a lot that the military does with private or civilian transportation companies. You know, what are the strengths and the challenges there heading forward? Sure, that's a great question. We absolutely depend on our commercial partners around the globe. In fact, for the um, air shipments that support Ukraine with equipment and munitions, about two-thirds of those flights are all done by our commercial partners, right, with a contract with us. And when you buy that airplane for a day, you get the, the ticket agents, right, the slot at the airport, the slot at the next airport. So you get the full package of their capabilities around the globe, not just here. So what they have in Guam, what they have in Japan. The downside of this, uh, we all have vulnerabilities. And we have a military network, which is, you know, fairly secure. Our partners work on the dirty Internet. Now, they're incentivized, especially when you think about ransomware, to have a very tight ship. But a determined cyber enemy might be able to get into those kinds of systems. So we're working together with them on things like our cyber vulnerability, sharing with them the intelligence on what it looks like to be attacked by this certain Russian actor or Chinese actor. Well, and if one of those companies was infiltrated, does that then expose the military to some of that risk too? That's how we think of it, uh, because it depends on right, what data they get and what, what, what are they doing with it. But the bottom line is, once you get into a company, there's a chance it could go laterally inside the company to get other things. That's what we might be concerned with, because they may be moving military cargo or military people, or it could just be their own commercial business. But we all, when I think about all of our business, and not just, you know, our airlines or our shipbuilding, this is all of the defense industry, you probably have heard, can get attacked, right? Uh, It started out with ransomware, but there's much more nefarious things going on uh, right now. 
uh, where they're not going to lock up your data to sell it to sell it back to you, but they they want to know your secrets. All right. So, what are the things that keep you up at night? <laughs> what are the scary things for you? Yeah. For me, I think about our foundational principles here in America, right? Democracy, human rights, sovereignty, international rule of law. And right now, so many things are shifting so quickly that people are not taking a step back to understand what it really means when you put it all together. When you put it all together, we're in a dangerous world. But you know what? We've been in a dangerous world before. And we led out of that dangerous world. And we can and we'll do it again. And you're seeing it right now. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to ask about is... I understand Transcom is doing a lot with local universities in St. Louis. Can you thanks. can you tell me about that? <laughs> yeah, thanks. When I think about the future, although I characterize it as, as concerning and maybe keeping you up at night, what doesn't keep me up at night is our youth because they're the ones that are going to break the paradigms and they're going to lead us into the future, whether in public service and private service or in the military. We have been partnering with uh, academia and, and that includes several universities here on uh, thinking about contested logistics and how we will, will operate in the future. And which schools are those specifically? So it's, it's, it's SLU, it's also uh, Southern Illinois University, and Washington U. So the educational partnership agreements that we have exposes the university students to the, the problems that we are having in logistics and gives them an, op- an opportunity to write papers or to do some experiments on how that they might solve it. Awesome. Well, General Vanovost, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks, sir. General Jackie Ovost leads U.S. Transportation Command based at Scott Air Force Base in the Metro East. Transcom is responsible for transportation throughout the world to help meet this country's security needs. Its recent high-profile work has included shipping vaccines and baby formula and shipping military equipment to Ukraine. General Van Ovost was talking with St. Louis Public Radio reporter Eric Schmidt. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.